Welcome. Ordained by uh, I'm Ann Browdy, the director of the Women's Studies and Religion Program, and very, very happy to um, welcome you today and to welcome our our guest, the Reverend Eldry Jim Matulski, as well as um, two of our indigenous friends, <laughs> HDS. Um, I am going to, this is our last um, uh, public program for the year for the Women's Studies and Religion program. Um, I, I can tell you that I'm in the process of negotiating with an incredible group of scholars to come next year. Um, so we look forward to seeing you for their presentations in the fall. I'm going to pass around uh, our mailing list in case there's anybody here who's not on it who would like to receive um, notice of our ongoing events. Is it too awkward to pass it around here? Should I just leave it on the table? Um, yeah, it seems I can't really imagine how to pass something around. So it'll be down here <laughs> if anybody wants to sign the mailing list uh, when you go. Please, please do. We'd love to keep in touch. Um, so I'm going to very briefly introduce the panelists who will be speaking to us today about AIDS, theology, and liberation. Um, uh, I first have to thank Lynn Gerber for arranging this panel. Um, Lynn, as you know, is a women's studies and religion um, visiting scholar. <laughs> Last year she was a research associate, um, but we're really happy that she was able to stay a second year uh, with us in the Carriage House. Lynn's first book, Seeking the Straight and Narrow, Weight Loss and Sexual Reorientation in Evangelical America, appeared from the University of Chicago Press in 2011. It compared efforts at retaining the body and bodily desire in two evangelical parachurch organizations, a Christian weight loss program and a network of ex-gay ministries. Um, her second major book that she has been working on here at Harvard Divinity School um, is what gave rise to today's panel discussion. It's entitled, A Church Alive, AIDS and the Metropolitan Commun Community Church of San Francisco. And we thank you so much for um, bringing this group together. I'll next introduce um, our other local speaker, Mark Jordan, um, who is the Andrew Mellon Professor of Christian Thought and Professor of the Study of Women, Gender, and Sexuality. Um, Mark has written way too many books to list today. Um, I do not even aspire to read all of them. Um, I'm skipping the ones on Augustine, but I personally have focused on some that are more relevant. Now he's going to kill me for saying that Augustine is not relevant to today's conversation. What am I thinking? Uh, just scratch everything I said. Don't put that on the videotape. I'll just mention a few of my favorite books that I hope you all will have the chance to read soon if you haven't already. Of course, the classic Invention of Sodomy, which was published in 1997. Um, Blessing Same-Sex Unions, um, which is quite relevant to today's conversation. And also, I think what's really my favorite, which is Recruiting Young Love, How Christians Talk About Homosexuality, um, which doesn't even come near to bringing you up to date with his most recent publication, so you'll have to take care of that on your own. 
Um, finally, um, it's a great pleasure to welcome uh, the Reverend Elder Jim Matulski back to Harvard Divinity School. Jim was here in 1995 in our Merrill Fellows Program. Um, and Dudley Rose, who unfortunately was not able to be here today, has very fond memories of you and your cohort um, when he was advising that program. Um, Jim began his pastoral career with the Metropolitan Community Church, the first historically gay Christian denomination. Uh, he began um, in New York City, um, uh, where he served as the associate pastor of the MCC of New York until 1986 when he was called to MCC San Francisco. His 15-year tenure there covered the heights of the AIDS years, with the church providing pastoral care, bereavement support, and thousands of funerals, along with several weekly services and countless programs. Um, he became well known for his social justice activism, and one thing I'm sure you will see today is the, the straight lines that connect that work and the pioneering work of AIDS activists like Jim in um, pushing the envelope with access to health care, um, particularly for disadvantaged populations, and so many of the issues that um, we're dealing with today. AIDS continues to be an important issue wherever issues of gender and race converge. And so we're very happy uh, to welcome Jim and our entire panel. Who's going to start? I am. Okay. <laughs> um, what, just before Lynn starts, I have to make one really important announcement, which is that we have this room until 5.30. So um, fortunately, at 5.30, we can move to the Braun Room for a reception, but there will be another event here. So we will politely um, uh, not linger and um, end our conversation here and move to the Braun Room at 5.30. Lynn, take Thanks. it away. Hi, everyone. It is a total pleasure to see you all. Just um, two minutes on format before we start. The way that we're going to do this is we're each going to talk for about 10 minutes. Then we're going to have a conversation amongst ourselves for a little bit, and then we'll open it up to the wider conversation. Um, and I want to start by thanking Anne, by thanking Tracy, by thanking my WSRP colleagues for making such an amazingly fruitful place for conversation and thought these last few years. My, I am so grateful. Um, students who have worked with me from here, from Berkeley, who are here today, seriously, no work can happen without you. <laughs> and Jim and Mark, it is such a rare gift to be able to talk about one's research with the subject of one's research and the thinker who makes any kind of sense of one's research. This is a total blessing for me, so I'm psyched and thank you all for being here. So one of my favorite podcasts ends each episode with a round of something they call Can't Let It Go. The host goes around the table and says one thing from the news that week that they can't get out of their heads, either because of its beauty, its horror, or in recent weeks, its sheer insanity. And I'd like to start my part of the conversation with one of my can't let it go moments in my current research about the Metropolitan Community Church of San Francisco and its engagement with HIV AIDS in the 1980s and 90s. The scene is the Castro, the country's iconic gay neighborhood, on a Sunday evening. The place is a small church on a quiet street, just four blocks from the corner of Castro and Market, where any given evening brings a parade of gay men cruising, 
organizing, socializing, protesting, or just living their lives. The church is colloquially known as the pink and purple church in the Castro, the place where gays and lesbians are known to gather in a Christian community that affirms homosexuality, gay and lesbian identity, and the kin networks that gay communities foster. <clears throat> Some of the leadership of the gay community believe this wedding of Christianity and sexuality to be a crutch at best, and a dangerous one for a community so frequently maligned by Christian leaders and communities. But if you went in that church on a Sunday evening in the late 1980s and 90s, you likely saw some of those very gay leaders alongside lesbians with children, act up members in bomber jackets, and Castro clones starting their night of cruising at a church service, only in the Castro. If you went in that church, you also saw a sign of AIDS everywhere, in canes, walkers, and the occasional IV pole in men too sick to stand, and the people who loved them physically supporting them to do so. You heard it in the sounds of watch alarms going off throughout the evening, telling wearers it was time to, to take their next pills. And you felt the pain, the loss, the grief, and the hope of AIDS in the singing, singing songs like this one. Whoop. Come. <laughs> but I cannot let this song go. Not only because it's an incredibly catchy tune, and I think I do have to apologize to the insomniacs in the room who are going to hear nothing else but this all night tonight. Believe me, welcome to my world. <laughs> but it seems, or at least seemed to me at the outset of my research, a most unlikely anthem for a gay positive congregation in the epicenter of the AIDS epidemic. Unlikely because of its kitschiness, unlikely in its hope, unlikely in its unabashed claims about heaven, and unlikely in its cultural resonance with the kind of Christianity that saw the suffering of people with AIDS as God's righteous punishment. I wanted to know what constellation of social, historical, and theological forces turned songs like When We All Get to Heaven from sentimental claptrap to a living promise to gay men facing AIDS in the time before any effective treatment. Part of the answer lies in the ways that Jim Matulski, a senior pastor, used liberation theology as a tool to engage with AIDS, and in doing so, revive the Christian tradition as a source of hope, a living water, if you will, for people whose very marginalization was, formed, was forged by that tradition and within its terms. We'll be exploring how he did that and what AIDS teaches us about theology throughout the rest of the panel. But my specific role here is to give you some context about AIDS in San Francisco in the 80s and 90s and the congregation that fought AIDS with liberation theology. So the Metropolitan Community Church of San Francisco, or MCCSF, was the second congregation found as part of what became the Universal Fellowship of Metropolitan Community Churches. <clears throat> 
The fellowship was founded in 1986, a year before Stonewall, in the Los Angeles living room of the Reverend Troy Perry. Perry was a Pentecostal minister in the Church of God of Prophecy until the disclosure of his homosexuality and his refusal to renounce it forced him from his pulpit. He founded the fellowship as a Christian church with a special outreach to gays and lesbians, an outreach that affirmed their sexuality, recognized their kinship ties, and rejected the notion that they were sinners bound for hell. That first service was marked by an open communion in which anyone could take part, and which people received alongside and often holding hands with their same-sex lovers and friends. The fellowship grew quickly, attracting gays and lesbians estranged from a wide range of Christian churches that viewed their sexuality with suspicion or outright condemnation. And in the 1970s, that included virtually all Christian communions. The San Francisco church was founded in 1970 in the upper room of Jackson's Bar. After spending much of the 70s moving from location to location, in 1979, they purchased a building on Eureka Street, a residential street in the city's Castro district. So this is a map of San Francisco. You'll see Castro is right in the middle. Keep that, keep that map in mind. And then here's a map of the Castro district itself. That star is the corner of uh, Castro and Market. It's where that Castro sign from the last sign was. And uh, the second star is where MCC San Francisco was. By the time MCC moved to the Castro, it had become nationally known as a gay neighborhood, one of a number of similar districts that had emerged in cities around the country. In contrast to earlier urban spaces where homosexuals and other sexual minorities gathered for sex and for socializing, the Castro was a place where gay people lived. They bought homes, opened businesses, began community institutions, and started building political power. MCC San Francisco moved to the neighborhood just a few months after the assassination of openly gay city supervisor Harvey Milk and that of San Francisco Mayor George Moscone. And they were there a few months later when the Castro burst into riots after the lenient sentencing of Dan White for those murders. The 1980s saw a number of significant shifts for our story. The first was the emergence of HIV AIDS. A previously unknown disease, HIV was a genuine and frightening medical mystery, and one that was alarmingly amenable to moralizing stories about its causes and about its sufferers. As an example, early on, the disease was simply called GRID, or gay-related immunodeficiency, and the people most likely to contract HIV were known collectively as the four H's, homosexuals, hemophiliacs, heroin addicts, and Haitians, all marginalized po populations that were further stigmatized by their association with the disease. The Castro was ground zero for the epidemic in San Francisco. Here's a map of the density of cases, and you can see how they're constellating right around that star that we saw in the first map. As the 80s progressed, the Castro had the highest concentration of AIDS cases anywhere in the country, and in the early 90s, it had the highest concentration of AIDS deaths. A community that was developing its political power was dealt a spectacular blow, and the streets started looking more like hospital wards than cruising zones. Another shift was in the fellowship itself. <clears throat> Alongside Troy Perry's generation of gay Christians who grew up in conservative churches and came out before Stonewall, a new generation of gay Christian pastors was emerging in universities and seminaries in the Northeast, most notably at Union and Columbia. This generation was infused with the gay liberation spirit unleashed at Stonewall and put it in conversation with liberation theologies emerging from Latin America and adapted by feminist black theologians and others. Jim Matulski was part of this new generation and started putting these ideas into practice as an assisted pastor at the MCC congregation in New York. 
He came to MCC San Francisco in 1986 at 26 years old and five years into the epidemic. These are some pictures of his ministry there, some of his unique duties. This is the Holy Union of Kit Cherry and Audrey Lockwood from 1987. <laughs> this is at the annual Blessing of the Bikes, a, I think, probably unique to MCC San Francisco ministry of blessing motorcycles at Leather Bars in 1988, and um, him speaking at the International AIDS Candlelight March in 1984. While Jim had experience working with AIDS in New York, he quickly realized that it was going to be the most significant reality shaping his ministry in San Francisco, and he began adapting liberation theology ideas and practices to that context. Perry and early fellowship leaders took pains to emphasize they were creating a Christian church first, downplaying its gay identity. Matulski and MCC pastors of his generation used liberation theology as a guide to putting the experiences of gays, lesbians, and people with AIDS first, using that experience as a lens through which to evaluate Christianity, find what was liberating there, and critique the rest. In doing so, he, along with the congregation's members, worked to create a space where Christianity could sustain the struggles of people with AIDS rather than add to them, a place where, where we all get to heaven could be sung sincerely, if not always literally. I want to close with one more can't let it go moment. It's a moment for me that exemplifies the way that Jim's approach and his preaching specifically helped create a space for Christianity to be engaged openly by gay and lesbian people who had every reason to be suspicious of its promises and practices. It's from a sermon he gave in November of 1991, close to the height of AIDS deaths in San Francisco, on a text that would become Matulski's most steady scriptural referent in understanding and preaching on the AIDS experience. The text is Ezekiel 37, verses 1 to 14, and the story is Ezekiel's vision of God resurrecting the exiled and defeated Israelites whose dry bones were scattered across an arid valley. Here's Jim. Ezekiel, God asked Ezekiel this question when Ezekiel looked at the devastation. God said to Ezekiel, can these bones live? And Ezekiel spoke such true words, perhaps you can identify with it, because he was tired and afraid to believe, fearful of dreaming almost. He said to God, I don't know. Only you know. I really don't know anymore. And he was acknowledging that on his own, he couldn't make it happen. But with God's help, with divine assistance, whatever form that takes in our time, that's how these bones, what seems without a future, can live and prosper and have a future. And those promises, I will open your graves, I'll bring you home, I'll bring you to a place that is your own land, can be fulfilled in our own midst. Can these bones live? That's the kind of question we have to ask ourselves when we think about what kind of future do we want for ourselves. We can look at Christianity and say, can these bones live? It hasn't worked very well, really, all things being equal. Uh, not only for gay and lesbian people, but for straight people as well. It has more often than not historically served to separate people from God or disempower them in their relationships with each other than it has to liberate and to empower. Can, this, can these bones live? Our congregation is trying. We're trying to see if it can live. It's an experiment, if you will, an ongoing experiment in belief. In this telling, resurrection is not just about the return of the dead. It's not only the bones of loved ones dead from AIDS that need reviving, although he does speak to that hope in this and many other engagements with these texts. In this segment, it's Christianity itself that needs to be revived, to find new breath if it's to give life to those facing AIDS. 
And it leaves open the very real possibility that it might be found wanting. That spirit of experiment, one that was cautious yet hopeful, is a large part of what I think made it possible for people with AIDS and without treatment options to skew threats of hell and start singing about heaven. Thanks. Thank you all for coming out this afternoon. I want to acknowledge the ghosts that gather for many of us as soon as we begin to speak of these topics. And I also want to acknowledge my own ambivalence because although I'm immensely grateful to Lynn for putting this event together and relish the opportunity for the three of us to sit together, I awoke this morning thinking, I absolutely don't want to do this. I absolutely don't want to talk about AIDS this afternoon. But I think it's important. My part in this opening is to remind you of some religious speeches swirling around AIDS in the US during the 1980s and early 1990s. So while Lynn has zoomed in very close on the church, I want to zoom all the way back to the religious setting. These swirling speeches were motives for trying to rethink the functions and forms of Christian theology in the face of AIDS. Many of the loudest religious speeches circulating in those years were violent. In 1983, visiting Cincinnati for a July 4th I Love America rally, Jerry Falwell referred to AIDS as a gay plague that was a definite form of the judgment of God upon society. He urged screening of blood donors, the clothing of gay bathhouses, and guidelines for service workers in contact with AIDS carriers. One week later, he drew an analogy to the quarantine of infected cattle. At about the same time, a certain Paul Cameron founded an institute for the scientific investigation of sexuality in Lincoln, Nebraska. Cameron became a go-to expert on AIDS for the religious right. In 1985, for example, he can be found assuring a reporter that unless things improve dramatically, one of the options discussed will be the extermination of homosexuals. As these voices shouted or smirked violence, various religious bodies began to issue statements about AIDS, though most were slow to do so, about as slow as the Reagan administration. Some of the church statements echo the condemnations of Falwell and Cameron. Delegates to the 1987 National Meeting of the Southern Baptist Convention criticized educational efforts that ignore biblical standards of decency and morality in favor of infidelity and adultery, as well as perversion. They deplored any widespread distribution of condoms that might encourage acceptance of immorality or deviant behavior. With perversion and, and deviation, we've got the entire lexicon of the 1950s. Other church statements suspended moral judgment under conditions of medical crisis. The 1988 General Conference of the United Methodist Church repudiated the language of divine punishment for sin, but then amended the church's social principles to read, although we do not condone the practice of homosexuality and consider this practice incompatible with Christian teaching, we affirm that God's grace 
is available to all. As you might remember or expect, other denominational documents were more affirming. In 1987, for example, the UCC General Synod adopted a pronouncement that repudiated the practice of blaming the victim and called the church to heal whether or not AIDS is the consequence of the patient's own behavior. These official statements may still have some interest, but they failed to acknowledge how AIDS interrupted standard church speeches about sexuality, but also about human mortality. AIDS outed a lot of men, church members and church leaders. In too many cases, news that a man had AIDS or had died of it became the first unequivocal declaration that he was gay. As the visible signs of AIDS became more familiar, it took courage for some sick members to keep attending their churches. Their faces, their thinness, their tottering fragility betrayed them. A number of congregations that had righteously denounced gay men as alien outsiders suddenly had to confront how many of those aliens had been inside. AIDS also sexualized the gay body in church discourses. It broke the compact, the genteel compact, by which queer folk, but especially gay men, were accepted on condition of becoming honorary heterosexuals. We welcome you. Just don't make us think about how you have sex. In many Christian churches, I suppose that rule also applies to heterosexuals. Still, the gay case was particularly charged. Even the advocacy of condoms by very progressive churches came to sound like a plea for sanitary separation. I associate this latex dream with another wish for impossible separation, the one expressed in the slogan, love the sinner, hate the sin. The slogan is supposed to safeguard moral principle while encouraging compassionate action. It is, of course, possible to help someone through the consequences of error while reminding her or him that it was error. That's the task of much parenting or teaching, and there's nothing particularly Christian about it. It's also possible to love someone who is a sinner. On many traditional Christian theologies, that's the predicament of every love between human beings. It is not possible, I would say, to enact love for a dying man while ceaselessly denouncing him for bringing it all upon himself by a sustained and sinful choice. These are some concrete ways in which the waves of AIDS death disrupted various church speeches in the US. Still, there was a deeper effect on progressive Christian theologies. AIDS punctured theological optimism or theological naivete. What, after all, could theologies of endless human progress and cheerful boosterism say to the growing number of the stigmatized facing cruel deaths at an early age? Well, you might say, people were suffering terribly before AIDS, both inside and outside the US, and you would be right. But we are limited creatures addicted 
to distraction and denial. AIDS made horrors visible inside churches that had enjoyed the privilege of tacitly assuming their own safety. One response to that visibility in churches was the return of eschatology, of a theology of the end times that was supposed to have vanished like the fog of superstition about 30 years earlier. The film Longtime Companion, released in 1990, follows the spread of AIDS through a network of friends in New York. It ends when the dead are brought back into the unhindered light on the celestial shore of Fire Island. <laughs> this is heaven. <laughs> the film sequence reflects a deep turn in queer art, especially queer religious art. There's a similar image in the sequence of AIDS icons by the Swedish photographer Elisabeth Olsen. Theologians and pastors who had been raised on optimistic simplifications of the gospel, who regarded themselves as part of an ethico-political struggle assured of success, found their congregations wanting to hear about final judgments, heavens, and bodily resurrections. Something more far-reaching is on display in Tony Kushner's drama, Angels in America, which has to count as one of the masterpieces of religious thinking about AIDS. In Angels, bodily sickness of AIDS, of despair, begins miraculously to triumph over the long sickness of US sexual, religious, and racial politics. This slow triumph, this turn, is the great work announced by the angel to human beings, but to human beings who are placed back into a re-theologized landscape with bewildered celestial hierarchies and powerful ghosts and unwanted visions. In Kushner, AIDS puts an end to the American secular, if there was ever such a thing. With angels, I come to my last point. As you all know, Drama is a form of ritual. Angels is both a play and a liturgy. The plague showed the importance of queer rituals. The dance, of course, and the music festival, the march and the parade, the blessing of unions, and the baptisms of transitions. But also the memorial service and public lamentation. The quilt, ashes actions, protest funerals, die-ins. Liberation theology is not just a theory translated into a platform that is then applied by calculation to political actions. Liberation theology, because it is theology, requires sacraments. Sacraments happen within liturgies. Liturgies are dramas of possible lives. In our grief, and even more in our refusal to grieve, we may have forgotten to keep writing those dramas. Here, the particular experience of AIDS in queer communities rejoins the human predicament of suffering, which arrives inevitably, sometimes crushingly, in so many forms. Liberation is only half of the great work. We do need to be liberated from outer and inner oppressions we do need to help each other in that liberation. 
We also need to invent, to imagine habitable forms of human life, individual and communal. That is the work of liturgy. Since theology likes authorities, let me secure this point with a final quotation from Marcella Althaus-Reed, a queer liberation theologian for these latter days. I quote Marcella. There are many sexual dissenters whose theological community is made up of the gathering of those who go to gay bars with rosaries in their pockets or who make camp chapels of their living rooms simply because there is a cry in their lives, a theological cry, which refuses to fit life into different compartments. Thank you. So it feels like a great honor to be with these two very academically distinguished theologians whom I adore, and whom I've known for several years in different ways, and, uh, and also to be back at Harvard. And I, I want to say that I'm the product of uh, great schools, uh, Columbia, Harvard. My MDiv is from Pacific School of Religion. I have an honorary doctorate from Star King. Uh, school for the Ministry for you Unitarians in the room. Uh, so a lot of Unitarian uh, teaching, but uh, I, I'm always worried that they're going to knock on the door in the middle of the night and say, you know, give us those degrees back for what I'm about to say, which, uh, and I think this is my role in this panel, when it comes to uh, theology and matters of religion and spirituality and AIDS, I think I'm somewhat of a fundamentalist um, in this regard. I believe in faith healing. I believe in the resurrection. Uh, I believe that uh, there's healing that comes to us through prayer, uh, that there is life after death, and that uh, there is meaning in suffering, and that the stories of the Bible are life-giving and even though I sat in these very rooms and uh, in Berkeley and in Morningside Heights, and I'm capable of higher criticism, uh, and I know, you know, JPED and all those things, uh, and I believe those things too. Honestly, if you sit with dying people for any period of time and over a long period of time, and it is your role because you feel called to it to inspire people uh, week after week after week, uh, when there's no hope in a literal sense, at least, in a material sense, that there will be an end to their material suffering through medical means, um, you have to find a spiritual solace. And I have found it in the stories of the Bible. I have found it in the sacraments of the Christian tradition. This is not to say I don't believe every religion is true. I do believe every religion is true. But I have to say uh, at the very beginning of this that I really do believe in the stories of this book and uh, in, the, in, in the power of healing and in uh, the life of the world to come. You know, uh, it, it's a contradiction in some ways, but I learned this from liberation theology and I learned it from people with AIDS. Uh, I'm not saying you have to believe as I believe, but I do want to offer it as a testimony as part of this sort of lofty uh, setting that uh, 
I do believe religion can be as liberating as it also, and we know that it can be very damaging. Um, and I think that this book, as capable as it is of bringing great hurt to people, it also has the key to liberating people, too. So uh, because I'm the preacher in the room, I wanted to show you I can be uh, in the panel, at least, though I think they each preach in their way. Um, I'm hard on Bibles. This is my first preaching Bible. I wore it out. And this is my current preaching Bible. And uh, I wear it out, too. Um, and uh, I've been a pastor for 35 years now in a variety of settings, in, Sanford, in, the, in Greenwich Village in, in New York, um, in San Francisco, uh, in Northeast Los Angeles, in Eagle Rock, if you know that, uh, in Denver, in Dallas, that's a trip. Uh, <laughs> and uh, in, uh, also in Atlanta, uh, so I've been all over. Um, but I will say this, those of you who are thinking about being pastors in the room, if you're thinking about it, there's no more rewarding work that you can do. So um, I encourage you in it. Um, I want to say this, I learned as much from the people I served as I did from the books that I've read. And I'm a voracious reader. But it is a principle of liberation theology that we learn as much from the people as we do from the books. And we learn as much from the people as we do from the tradition. And it is our role as pastors, not just to represent the tradition to people, but sometimes we have to represent the people to the tradition, especially when the tradition is flat out wrong. And AIDS, they got it wrong. The tradition, the people had it right. So um, I, my ministry really coincided with the AIDS, AIDS. I don't know, it just was an accident of history, but uh, my first church was in Greenwich Village. And I remember uh, going to uh, visit someone at St. Vincent's Hospital at 12th Street and 7th Avenue, if you know the, the village and being called to visit someone, being called from the hospital, and being uh, asked to suit up in what looked like a space suit. Uh, this was in 1981, at that point, I wasn't even ordained yet, uh, for the protection of the patient as well as for me. Maybe it was 82. Um, and the person had a thing they called, as you mentioned, gay-related infectious disease, GRID. And, um, it was a horrible situation, and that's what AIDS was like then. And medical people didn't know what to make of it, and no one knew what to make of it. But I did know that we were called to be there, to be present. And I didn't care what uh, church taught. I knew that we were called to be there. And the church was very late in arrival uh, in responding to the needs of people with HIV. Very late. There was a 10-year silence. The 80s was a very long decade. Uh, it wasn't until 1989 that the National Council of Churches really decided to show up and study HIV. That's a little late, don't you think? Uh, I will credit Letty Russell, uh, the great liberation theologian from Yale, the feminist liberation theologian from Yale, um, for commissioning in uh, being in charge of the, the study group that studied it. And they came to San Francisco, as they had done earlier uh, in the 80s, to study homosexuality, because the only city they could think of where they could find <laughs> homosexuals was San Francisco, and then people with AIDS was San Francisco. And they, the only church they could think of to find them was the gay church in San Francisco, first for, homo, for homosexuality, then for AIDS. They came to my little church. Um, and that 
slowness to respond. It was characteristic of what it was like. How churches dealt with sexuality was indicative of how they dealt with AIDS. And they used to think that they, it was okay to have to separate out um, how you dealt with uh, sexuality uh, with how you dealt with AIDS. They, they used to think that we could deal with the sick and dying person because we felt sorry for them, but they, didn't, they weren't really interested in um, the live, well person. We used to say, if you won't marry us, you can't bury us. And we meant that. It was a moment of healing for us, of self-determination, of health. Uh, we weren't interested uh, in our liberation theology enclave in being treated like sick, dying people. Sometimes people had no choice. I'm not judging that. But what we learned in our liberation enclave was this. We weren't interested in a model of ministry that was based on ministry to us we created a model of ministry by and with people with HIV, not ministry to people with HIV. And we learned that in direct lineage uh, with liberation theology. I learned liberation theology first at Pacific School of Religion. I studied it first in college, I have to say, to credit, in fact, we were talking earlier, uh, Carol Christ, a feminist theologian, who gave me a copy of Rosemary Ruther's liberation theology. Uh, a book called Liberation Theology. It was a book about applying Latin American models of liberation theology to a North American context. And she gave it to me very kindly and said, I'm really way past this, but I think it could be really good for you. Um, and, uh, but I learned about Oscar Romero and uh, El Salvador, the struggle in El Salvador, which was happening while I was in seminary. And uh, it was very influential for those of us who were in seminary at that time. And that's what, uh, really shaped a lot of the, the work that we did in San Francisco. And that's where I learned to listen to the people rather than to the books first, because there was nothing, I wasn't getting a lot of help uh, from uh, school. In fact, I was in seminary. I got my MDiv, I forgot to go to seminary first uh, before I became a pastor. I was uh, pastoring uh, while I was in seminary. And uh, I, I'll give you an example. This is liberation theology from the people. Paul Francis, a member of my church, came to me and said, shortly after being diagnosed, uh, well, actually about six months into being diagnosed, his birthday was coming up, and he said, you know, my diagnosis, and, and at this point in uh, AIDS, the typical time between a person's diagnosis and their death was about 11 months, no treatment. So he said, I, um, my birthday's coming up, and my life has really changed since I had to stop working, uh, and I've reoriented my priorities. My birthday's coming up, I wanna celebrate. I wanna have a party to celebrate my birthday. And uh, do you think it's in bad taste if I have a party? And I said, no, that's great. People will want to celebrate with you. And he showed me the card that he had found um, to send to people, it was a Hallmark card. Uh, and it was a picture of a frog sitting on a lily pad. And the, caption was, party till you croak. <laughs> and I said, uh, he said, is this in bad taste? I said, we're homosexuals. We determine taste. <laughs> it, was an, it was a painful, difficult time that the culture was unprepared for. But he wanted us to celebrate 
his six months of being alive. And we did celebrate one, one more year and two more years and three more years almost with him. And I can't even explain that to people who weren't there. But that's what liberation theology looks like in very you know, practical terms, uh, celebrating what we could in the face of death. Uh, does, I don't even know if that will make sense to you. Um, another example, conscious of my little time, of, I want to give you concrete examples. I think that's the best way to use my time um, of uh, funerals, hundreds of funerals, so many funerals uh, that you can't even imagine. Sunday was church day. We had three services every Sunday. And you would not expect that that's what San Francisco life was like. You wouldn't expect to see a church packed on Sunday for three services of Holy Communion. Uh, but the Eucharist had incredible meaning for us. We gathered at the table where everyone was welcome. We said this every Sunday at every service. Doesn't matter what church you grew up in. Doesn't matter what you were told about who could come to this table or who could not. But everyone's welcome. The sacrament became the sign of inclusion, not the sign of exclusion. And we said, this is my body. Our whole healthy bodies. This is my blood. Blood was not seen as toxic or unclean or dangerous, but wholesome and healthy and life, right? So we subverted that. And, but Saturday was funeral day, right? One after another. And every life deserves to be celebrated, right? So one Saturday, and I did a lot of deathbed weddings because our country didn't recognize the value of these relationships where in sickness and in health was the most important word in the ceremony. And I kept thinking, I hope someday people see what we bring as a gift to our culture. We know something about marriage, sickness and health. This is what it looks like. And people would always say, and I'm not saying until death to us part. They would always say, that, forget that. <laughs> That's ridiculous. <laughs> but then we would do funerals, often for the same people shortly thereafter. Right? So one guy, one funeral we did, uh, it was a beautiful funeral. Everyone got an orchid at the funeral. Um, and his partner said to me, at the doors, we were shaking hands. Yes, everyone got an orchid, very lovely, a little high maintenance, <laughs> like he was. <laughs> They're not getting orchids at my funeral. <laughs> Two months later, we had his funeral, and the chapel was filled with fiesta wear, which is this thing only a gay man could love with a passion <laughs> and collect <laughs> with a passion, this garishly colored, I think it's back in fashion. <laughs> Everyone came in and saw this fiesta wear and thought, ooh, maybe, maybe I'll get some. <laughs> I mean, you know, how people are. Uh, and he had provided that uh, I would break a piece of it at the end and instruct others to do the same. And 
because he said, at my funeral, I want people to be mad. I don't want them to think lovely thoughts. I want them to be angry. And sure enough, I mean, I didn't think I could do this. It was not in the rubrics. <laughs> but it was extraordinary times. I broke a piece, I broke a second piece. Pretty soon the whole room was breaking fiesta wear. Some of the queens were like, no, not the fiesta wear. <laughs> you know what? It helped us feel. Because what happens when you go, picture this. Can you picture this going to funerals week after week after week? And you know, there was no real effective treatment until 1995, all right? So AZT extended life in the early 90s from 11 months to 19 months. That was something, but it wasn't like now, right? So uh, those are two examples of things that came from the people, organic. That's liberation theology. Um, I'm going to give one more quick example of what liberation theology looks like when you read the Bible through liberation theology eyes. In Luke 17, the story of the ten lepers. Uh, when I read that, this is my liberation theology lens. I think that's the story of the ten lepers. Jesus is coming toward a town uh, somewhere between uh, Galilee and Samaria. Something like that doesn't really exist. He sees ten lepers. What I, how I learned to read the Bible through HIV hermeneutic. Ten lepers. Wait, lepers aren't supposed to congregate together. That's breaking one rule already. I like that. <laughs> and they shout out to Jesus, not stay away, but Jesus, have mercy on me. Enter into my situation. <clears throat> have compassion. They're supposed to say, stay away. We hate ourselves. That's what Leviticus says we're supposed to say. I thought, eh, one of them is acting up. Wait, that's the first <laughs> act up chapter. <laughs> There's an act up chapter in the book of Luke. Ten of them congregating together. Perhaps the other nine are saying to him, shh, shh be quiet. You're going to make it worse for the rest of us. And maybe Jesus is like, oh, no, no, you have to be quiet. Uh, and, and he thinks it's his job to get them to resign them, the, themselves to their situation. <coughs> but instead, he says to them, go to St. Patrick's Cathedral and show yourselves to the priests and create a ruckus instead. <coughs> no, it doesn't really say that. <laughs> but that's what happens when you read the Bible as if you believe you have a place in it, as if you think your story belongs there, <coughs> and it informs you, and you inform it. It means that you have faith in it, that you believe it has a liberating word for you. You can only do that if you have decided not to be tyrannized by it. But instead, despite of what it, how it has been used against you, you claim your place in it and use it for your liberation. <coughs> it's a profound act of faith. And I believe this is what people with HIV have to bring to the church as a gift. In spite of how we've been treated, and I say we because I am also a person with HIV, <coughs> 
We are not a problem to be solved. We are gift bearers, and we have something to teach <coughs> the broader church. That's all I'll say for now. <laughs> I have one more thing I'll save for the end. <laughs> I do want a final word, because <laughs> I'm a preacher. <coughs> Thank you, Jim. Yep. <clears throat> So this is the portion of our time where we were going to talk amongst ourselves a little bit, although I feel that our time is shorter and that perhaps we should just open it up, particularly if there are last words <coughs> involved. Is that, does that work for folks? Okay. So um, I think the rest of our time should be a conversation with all of us. Um, so we'll take any questions, comments, concerns. Yeah, I don't want to take a position on alternative therapies or go there. What I do know is people who have access to medications and who take them do much better on them. And uh, the real question for us is who has access to medication and who does not. And that's what we should be looking at, especially right now 
in the climate that we are in in our current presidential administration. Oh. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And globally. <laughs> Firstly, thank you all very much. I'm very moved by what everybody shared about the history. As someone, I'm 34, so I uh, came out as many people were dying um, and grew up as a Unitarian Universalist, and so people were talking about HIV and AIDS as part of um, my faith community. And I do work now with folks who are living with HIV who are incarcerated, uh, and one of the things that I notice about uh, all your talks is that it's very much the past, the HIV and AIDS theology of the 80s, of uh, the height of the crisis in white gay men's communities. Um, the race was mentioned once, uh, but as an all-white panel, I'm wondering if you reflected on how, when talking about liberation theology, which comes from communities of color, uh, as white folks engaging in this, in such an important way, uh, what is the role as we see AIDS having, you know, devastating impacts on young black gay men, uh, young uh, black trans women, including in, our, in Boston, how, how that theology is lived now? Because I feel like you have so much to offer that feels a little bit stuck in the past, and I'm curious how that theology is shaping AIDS liberation theologies today. Great question. Do you want to take it or shall I start? You can start and well, I'll pick it up. I was just thinking, it struck, it struck a question. So we had planned to ask each other questions. And I'm a historian, so I am entirely stuck in the past. Um, <laughs> 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 um, but it's, it's the relevant question that I was going to actually ask Jim in our time together was um, one of the interesting and really important pieces of work that Jim did was trying to build um, relationships across race, given that MCC San Francisco was largely a white congregation, and frankly, a lot of churches of color weren't wanting to recognize AIDS as a problem in their midst. MCC San Francisco had a very strong interest in building coalition politics kind of before coalition politics became like the word of the day, and so I was going to ask him to speak a little bit about some of the relationships that he built with um, African American churches, Latino churches, um, in a very sort of deliberate manner to some success and less success, but there's there's historical roots to your question that also get obfuscated in a panel with ten minutes and you know that kind of thing. So that's the that's the past. So I'm an activist. I'm totally rooted in the present. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, and yes, I I took my 14 minutes and I was only given 10. But that's why I asked for my final oh, words. Yeah. Yes. So uh, to me, we used to say act up, fight back, fight AIDS. Today we say Black Lives Matter, and it means there is a direct lineage. When you are saying, uh, when you are concerned with the lives of black people today, you are in a continuum. It is a continuum uh, because, uh, and also my, the three issues I would link are uh, immigration and the lives of immigrants. Uh, that's true right here in Boston, though I'm somewhat new to Boston, but I would say nationally. What does the CDC say? One of every two black gay men, so black gay identified, not just MSM, but gay identified, black gay men will develop AIDS in their lifetime right now. That's a 19, that's, I'm sorry, that's a 2016 statistic, all right? And one in three Latino gay men. So this are a huge, and 
I mean, I could go down a whole list of statistics with you right now. This is what this looks like today. You cannot separate out what is happening with HIV without a gender and a racial analysis and access to healthcare. And that's in just the United States. So I've been to Zimbabwe and done HIV work. I've been to South Africa and done HIV work. I've done, also been to El Salvador. So this is in the last several years. Um, this isn't, so it's not just nationally, there's a whole global piece to this too. HIV continues to be a, an enormous health risk and health problem, but you cannot separate it out from racism and sexism and xenophobia. Um, and the churches are just like, duh, MIA, I believe, on this. If, if you cannot talk about racism, if you cannot talk about sexism, if you cannot talk about xenophobia, if you cannot talk about homophobia, if you cannot talk about sex, then you can't do effective HIV management. If you can't talk about drugs and drug use, you can't. And I'm in a liberal church. I'm in the United Church of Christ now. And I say this with love and affection for it. You know how we talk about sex? By silence. <laughs> this is what liberal <laughs> looks like. And I, I say this with affection and devotion to my denomination. Um, there's an inability. We haven't figured out how to talk about. I mean, I think the Unitarians are a little better, but, but a little, you know. <laughs> I mean, this is what, I think outside the church, there's more progress. Um, so, I mean, we could, I really wanted to talk about this a lot, actually. Um, but I, I think you've hit the nail on the head right now. This is what it looks like right now. And so to not talk about it is uh, to, to talk as if HIV is periodized mm. in the past mm. is a mistake. I mean, this was a history panel looking very specifically at starting with your project, but um, I mean, I'm ordained in an African-American Pentecostal denomination, the Fellowship of Affirming Ministries also, because I believe in uh, that we have to make different kinds of effective coalitions we have to put our bodies where we say we believe the, you know, what we believe in. Um, but these are the kinds of coalitions. And last Thursday I went, I'll do this one last thing, uh, to um, MCAN. I'm going to get what it stands for wrong. Massachusetts Communities. Somebody belongs to it in this room. Action Network. Action Network. <laughs> Solidarity service for Muslims and immigrants. It was at Lion of Judah Congregation, a Pentecostal church in downtown Boston. Now, this was an immigration service. But what I loved about it was this, and you may say, what does this have to do with AIDS? It has everything to do with how we do solidarity work right now. Um, what I loved about it was Pentecostal church service and there were Unitarians and Jews and Muslims there together, even though and that, it was no kidding, no holds barred, hands in the air, <laughs> praise music. And I loved it, even though I could uh, tell there was discomfort from our <laughs> liberal religionist friends. <laughs> this is what coalition work looks like. We weren't asking the Pentecostals at Lion of Judah to be like, to, to not be themselves. We were like, uh, um, like 
we were well, and we were welcomed. I told the pastor, I'm a gay guy. And he said, brother, can I give you a hug? Okay? And this is the part that connects with HIV for me. They were going to have people from the congregation testify about how, what it's like right now in Boston as an undocumented person. And just before the service, they decided not to have anyone speak because they were afraid that there would be repercussions for them. They didn't even, they weren't even sure that they would be, that they wouldn't be arrested because there would be people in the congregation. So that viscerally, that could have been a gay service 30 years ago. That level of fear, I, I felt it. It just was like, oh my God, I've been in this. I know what this level of fear feels like. I'm not saying it's the same, but I am saying I know what that feels like, all right? And sure enough, did you see in the news today that people who spoke at a similar service um, were arrested uh, in the United States? Uh, th these fears were not unfounded. I'm sharing this with all of you because this is an AIDS talk. And if you get nothing else but this, from this, from this, we need to be in solidarity around undocumented immigrants. That was what I was going to say at the end. That's, there, you've got it. You know? But I was going to let this sinner do not let this harvest pass. Uh, this is about stigma. HIV is about stigma. When I was a student here a billion years ago, Jonathan Mann taught us class at the School of Public Health. I took this class, even though I was supposed to be taking divinity school classes. <laughs> what did I do? I stole away and I took Henry Louis Gates on the Har Harlem Renaissance. And <laughs> I didn't want to do any dumb religion classes. <laughs> um, and Jonathan Mann at the School of Public Health on uh, AIDS in an international context. First day of class, pulls down a global map. He says, if AIDS, if I could put the AIDS virus in a little jar here and sprinkle it on this map, it would reveal anywhere there was sexism, racism, xenophobia, he didn't say xenophobia at the time. He did say sexism and racism, homophobia, or stigma, or unequal access to healthcare. And it would show on the map, and it would be a congruence with where there was HIV. That stuck in my mind. I remember it as clear as a bell today. Um, that's. That's how I'm answering your question. Does it make sense? Mm -hmm. yeah. Don't ask a preacher a question. <laughs> <laughs> Pulled the string. Other folks? Someone back here. Oh, yeah. Jim, I was up there in the early 90s in San Francisco, and uh, one of the things I was really
how the activist and you think that that can be maybe um, revived now. And they were sort of, sadly, they were kind of a casualty of the, the pharmaceutical success, you know, of the, of the 90s, where you know, we didn't really need to come together as, as organically. Anyway, I was, just, I was just wondering what your thoughts are about whether or not you still have a future in this future. <coughs> you see a future in this in some ways, you saw a future of it the day of the, uh, the, day, of the, le the day of the legislation, the day of the internet legislation was, was, was signed, and hundreds of lawyers showed up at airports. So, anyway, because um, I think people really need to feel like they can contribute. So, that's like three questions. I'm going to pick one strand. Um, has anyone, is anyone watching Still We Rise, by the way? Is that what it's called, Still We Rise? Anyone on ABC? Network television, for God's sake, what has happened? It's great. Uh, I mean, it doesn't even have to be great. It's just like, how cool is this? Uh, um, anyway. Watch it if you can. It's about San Francisco, and I love it because it's a corrective to the New York-only way of telling the story of gay liberation. It's not perfect, but you know, it's oh my God, someone's telling the story from the California perspective. Um, and you reminded me of that with what you asked, uh, and you mentioned healing circles, and uh, you know, I do want to say this about that. Even in our, you know, liberal theological environment, um, I think we have surrendered too much to the head-only approach to worship. There is something to be said for touch, consent, consenting touch, of course, uh, and embodiment. And this, I may sound like a total kook from California, <laughs> but um, you know, and I'm a person who, when I was diagnosed with AIDS, it was a terminal illness. I may say so. Um, I didn't like to say, think it at the time, but, uh, and here I am, not nearly finished. There's something very empowering about living past your pull date, by the way. <laughs> you know, makes you a little kooky. Uh, but, uh, you know, with AIDS, people didn't want to touch you. So, this may sound, and there are other physical ailments where that is the case, where people avoid you physically. Uh, so... Creating environments in church or in hospital rooms or in homes where people, with your permission, of course, surround you and touch you and pray with you. Not, you know, healing has a lot of different meanings. And I don't mean healing like to put pressure on you, but I mean just as solidarity. I can't tell you, it helped me a lot when I was feeling isolated. I, I actually think it's why I'm alive. Truthfully, yeah. I mean, medicine too, and I take it. But um, so I don't think we should surrender too quickly. I really believe in those healing stories in the Bible. Something happened. There's a reason why they're powerful today. Um, activism. I think we should not give up too quickly on it. Uh, didn't you love seeing how, seeing how quickly people responded? I know that activism isn't for everybody, and it's going to take... Everyone should only do what they feel is consistent with their own values, and it's not for everyone. But there is something about putting your body in congruence with 
your beliefs. It changes you, even when you when you you don't do it necessarily thinking that it's going to change opinion. I learned this my my first protest march. 19, you never forget your first one, right? <laughs> 1978, the Equal Rights Amendment. <laughs> Getting on a bus from New York City, everyone dressed in white, like the suffragettes, going down to, to Washington, D.C., and marching for the ERA. And then being, like, so shocked that it didn't pass. <laughs> and I, my lesson from that was, it didn't matter. Of course I wanted it to pass but it changed me, right? And I think, I love these, you know, that I think there's a direct lineage. Act up, occupy, Black Lives Matter. These movements are not failed even if they dissipate mm -hmm. because something has changed inside them, the people who participate in them. So those aren't failed. You don't know how the, what change will result down the road as a result of participation, and I think that that's true of all this, all the AIDS activism. It didn't. I'm a little disappointed that we didn't end up with single payer healthcare after all that. <laughs> but um, I don't think it failed because we didn't. So if there's a resurgence of activism, you know, it does change you. As a result, you have to pick. You, no one. You should never do it if you don't believe it. I really believe that, and everyone does it in their own quiet way. I'm learning, I'm serving in a congregational church, a New England, traditional New England congregational church right now in Needham, and I'm so grateful. There's a chair of the Board of Deacons is here, Susan Lively, <laughs> and I'm so appreciative of this opportunity to learn in a new way, and because they have a, a more quiet, quietest spirituality than I'm, that I, has been typical for me, right? And I'm learning new ways. And let me say this, when I became a minister 35 years ago, someone like me, could never have served in a congregation like this. The world has changed in positive ways, and I'm grateful for that too. You know, uh, so who knows where these actions lead, and what changes are happening around us? Uh, the world is different. I think it's a really great question. It, I think it goes to one of the central challenges of queer cultural transmission, mm -hmm. which is that it does not happen through biological family for the most part. It does not happen, with some exceptions now, through state uh, institutions of education. Uh, it now begins to happen more in the media. Um, I spent, um, especially when I, I listened to Jim, I, I'm always aware that I was um, 
I was on the margins of the AIDS crisis because I was in South Bend, Indiana, teaching at Notre Dame um, when the first deaths really hit South Bend. And what struck me at that time, although we felt entirely isolated and, um, and cut off, was that there, was, there were these deep roots of a local queer community in South Bend, Indiana, despite the Golden Dome of Notre Dame right there. There were these deep roots, and, um, and in a curious way, the same tragedies, the same pains, the same suffering. So part of it, I, th I think at least, um, and this is where I, I share with Lynn a sense of the political importance of history. I think we need to record memories before people die, Yes. right? Because, because our memories have not been written down. Our memories have not been recorded. Even at a place like Harvard, we're struggling to make up for the fact that Harvard did not collect queer material because it was considered either sub-academic or peripheral or scandalous or whatever. So we've got to record this. And I suspect that you would, although you would know this better than I, but I suspect that you would discover in your hometown um, people with deep memories of queer lives going back 60, 90 years into the past. But I think I really welcome the question because I think it reminds us that we have to compensate. We cannot take for granted that the history is recorded. That's not true for our communities. Be vigilant about our, uh, our liberties right now. I, I was a librarian also, <laughs> in addition to being a minister, because I love books. <laughs> and I worked at the San Francisco Public Library as well, uh, and uh, at the Hormel Gay and Lesbian Center, which is in, it's a public archive in a public library. And we had to struggle, even then, to preserve access to materials. And it was so important for us to be a gay archive in a public library, not in a, not in a university setting. Um, and this was during uh, the confirmation hearings for James Hormel, <laughs> who was the first gay ambassador, I think, to, to Luxembourg. Luxembourg. <laughs> okay, uh, just saying. Uh, because we set taste. That's right. <laughs> Oh. He uh, had, so the archive was named after him at the public library because he gave a million dollars, bless his heart. And we, we used to say, we serve spam at all our events with gratitude. Um, I guess that he made it, right? Uh, but, uh, but he had given a, I'm going to use a, a word that might jolt some people. In the collection, we had something called, from the 70s, from the women's health movement, called the Kant Coloring Book. He didn't give it, right? but it was in the collection. And because we had this in the collection, his confirmation as ambassador to Luxembourg was nearly blocked because the Traditional Values Coalition said that he was a purveyor of pornography and the San Francisco Public Library made pornography available to minors. This really happened, this was in 2001. This was not that long ago. All right, and that, there was a huge brouhaha about this. And in the end, we had to embargo it. We had to put it, you had to, we had to put it in an envelope, you had to ask for it, and it nearly scuttled his appointment. I'm sharing this with you because we are in another climate where these kinds of things could happen again. And you can laugh at it, but you know, this really happened. And I could see, this is not so outrageous, you know. And the consequence is 
materials in public libraries where in a place like Northwest Ohio <coughs> could make a difference, you know. Uh, the Patriot Act also, at the time, uh, used with libraries access to the internet as um, one of the leverage points uh, for whether or not they would make readers um, what they accessed available for public government scrutiny. So we just had to be very vigilant. Uh, so librarians hate stuff like that, you know. Uh, they're very First Amendment aware. We have to be very vigilant around what's happening around uh, access to information. Because I do think that one thing that's good today that's different is that young, <coughs> young people or people living in remote areas do have some access to information, uh, at least, that they wouldn't have had in the past. I mean, God, I remember, this is true, in, in, when I went to Columbia, going to the card catalog at Union Seminary, 1976, looking up homosexuality, see <laughs> perversion. <laughs> that actually made it more interesting to me. But, <laughs> uh, <coughs> Should we take one last question? But he's already heard it. So, yeah. so say it one more time. <laughs> well, stories, isn't it all about stories, right? You know? Uh, it is all about stories. This is, uh, here, you know, Friday night I went to Delaware to preach at um, the installation of my friend Diane Fisher's installation as the pastor of the MCC Church in Rehoboth, Delaware, okay? Who knew there's a gay church in Rehoboth, Delaware? Because you have to drive. I didn't know Delaware was that big. I, was talking to I thought it was something you drove, I think you only drive 13 miles through it when you're driving to Washington, but there's a peninsula, who knew? So uh, there I was. And there's a lesbian church. It's not just a gay church, it's a lesbian church in Rehoboth, Delaware. So how cool is that? I mean, the, the specificity of it. I mean, everyone's welcome. And there were probably 80 lesbians and 10 gay guys and other people from the town. Um, but what I loved on Friday night was, uh, it was kind of a throwback. Uh, we were sat around in the pastor's house and it was all, a lot of strangers, 20 strangers packed into our living room. And we just shared stories. How did you meet? How did this two, these two get together? You know, how did, when did you come out? Who's gay in your family? And I realize straight people did this too, but it was like, it was like, it's what gay people do, right? Or, and we were all of a certain generation, you know? But I loved it uh, because we were sharing stories. And, and strangers became friends by sharing coming out stories and who's gay in your family stories and 
you know, I said, I've got 50 first cousins and I'm the only gay one in my family. How did that happen? You know, Catholics, right? You think, no, you think there'd be eight, right? And these are the kinds of things, this is how gay people who often are, are used to being a, a minority in a group, when we get together, we make community quickly. And I think that this is a gift also we bring to a larger group. So I'm not sure that that gets added exactly, but I'm, I think that somehow the stories are important. And the Bible, you know, as a preacher, I just hate preaching from epistles because they're preachy, you know? Um, I, that's my job. I'm the preacher. I don't need, I don't need Paul preaching. Uh, I want to tell the story, right? So uh, I think the best parts of the Bible are the stories, right? That's what Midrash is. That's the whole technique of Midrash, right, is you find yourself in the space between verse 2 and verse 3. And whether it's the Hebrew Bible or the New Testament, it, you have to believe that your story is here. That's why I like those old gospel songs. This is my story, this is my song, you know. Um, and that's, that is kind of a cool thing about MCC, too, even though it's, you know, it's very old-fashioned. And I want to do a plug right now for three cool churches. Uh, but one is the MCC Church in downtown Boston, Sunday night, 6 o'clock. Um, queer church, old-fashioned queer church values. Uh, sometimes you just got to go and have queer church. <laughs> 6 o'clock, MCC Boston at Old West. The coolest church in Boston, Mestre West, is the Congregational Church of Needham. <laughs> it is. It is. The building is beautiful. The music is traditional. The people are warm, welcome, and it is the future. It is a truly blended congregation. And this is what the future looks like. You can go there and be yourself and uh, be welcomed for who you are. It's the best of the UCC tradition. And the hottest preaching in Cambridge <laughs> is at the old Cambridge Baptist Church <laughs> on Sunday mornings at 10.30. And the minister, Cody Sanders, is sitting there. And you want, you want good preaching? You want to hear really liberation theology preaching from the Bible? from a Baptist, <laughs> but as I say, he's the smartest Baptist preaching in the country. Now, I'm not making a Baptist joke. I wanted to so badly. <laughs> That's right. I'm not going to do it. The bar's low, but there it is. Uh, there. So I'm saying this to the seminarians in the room because I know sometimes when you're in seminary, you think you don't need to go to church. Go to church. Just go to church. So there. That's my, that's my pitch. Good. We should stop. Yes. <laughs> I never thought I'd chair a panel where the last word was go to church, but <laughs> amen. <laughs> Thank you all. <laughs>